0: Listen to me. I don't know what's happening or what you just saw, but I am stopping this. Do not tell Dad what you just said to me. Do not, okay? Because it is not true.
1: Something is happening, and I'm the only one who could stop it. Do you understand? I'm the only one who can fix this.
2: This is Now Playing Podcast's bonus Halloween movie review of Hereditary. <clears throat> um, it's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today. Uh, I know my mom would be very touched and probably a little suspicious (laughs) um, to see this turn out. A review selected by Podbean backer, Mark Ward.
1: Yes, thank you, that was so good.
2: Hosted by Arnie, Stewart, and Jacob.
3: They never had hope because they're all just like hopeless. They're all like pawns in this horrible, hopeless machine.
2: This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language.
0: Don't you swear at me, you little shit! Don't you ever raise your voice at me! I am your mother!
2: Listener discretion is advised.
0: Who's gonna take care of me? (laughs) Um, excuse me? You don't think I'm gonna take care of you? But when you die...
1: Today we're talking about Hereditary, starring Tony Collette, Alex Wolfe, Millie Shapiro, with Anne Dowd and Gabriel Byrne, directed by Ari Aster. This is Arnie, one of the eight kings of hell, and one of tonight's three co-hosts of Now Playing.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm the second severed head, this is Stuart.
0: This is Jacob, who rejects the Trinity.
3: And Happy Halloween! Happy, happy
1: Halloween, 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 happy,
3: happy Halloween, here's a free bonus show. Yeah, the real one. I know that some people were not so excited to get corn yesterday. That was supposed to be our Halloween show. Hey, you gave it more than a pat of butter. I did, I did. It was a a happy ending, I guess
0: you but, gave it a happy ending oh that was just like when you get those bitto honeys not real candy king size snickers this is going to the rich person's house like giving away the full-size candy bars something good for halloween
3: There's no doubt about it. Hereditary was a bigger movie this year than Children of the Corn Runaway. (laughs) I think it had more impact. It was, from the beginning of the year, a movie I heard tremendous buzz about. So much so that by the time it came to Springfield sometime this summer, I felt like if you ever liked a horror movie, you were required to go see it.
1: I had it on my plans to watch. I had not seen it before this review, but I need to give a major shout out to Mark Ward. He's one of our Podbean patrons. He came to us after seeing we were going to be reviewing The Witch and was like, well, I need to hear you guys talk about Hereditary. And so he floored us by making the pledge to add it. And because it's Halloween, we decided instead of keeping it as a patron show, we're going to do this as a bonus show for everybody. We've got so many shows coming out right now with Apocalypse Now on the patron feed for Veterans Day and all the M. Night Shyamalan films and Jamie Lee Curtis films on the donation feed and of course Suspiria. We thought, let's give... Everybody, a bonus Halloween treat and not a trick. So thank you, Mark. The reason Mark wanted it reviewed is he had just seen it days before he pledged to us. He saw it in Australia and... What he typed was, it hit Blu-ray in Australia, and I was absolutely flawed. And he honored us, not just with the donation, but he said we're his go-to reviewers, and he really wanted to hear our thoughts.
3: And I hope I can gather them up for you, but when I saw this movie, I was also floored. I could not formulate an opinion. If we were doing it weekend of release, it would have been a lot of, eh, I don't know. I mean, this was a true surprise. I feel like I've seen a lot of horror movies I know what to anticipate. They name-checked Exorcist. I'm like, I think I know what movie I'm getting. It's called Hereditary. It's going to be something with a bloodline. But there are so many misdirections and strange narrative trips that this movie takes that it ended up surprising me a lot. I had no idea what I had seen and I had no way of talking about it for several weeks.
0: I'm right there with you, Stuart, because I was hyped for this. I heard the buzz coming out of Sundance, people saying, you gotta just see the trailer, it's gonna freak you out. My wife and I were excited to go see this, ready to go see it weekend of release, which I had to go see Ocean's 8 instead, because we're reviewing that. And so the second week... Well, Incredibles too, but I didn't care. I was going to see it because I'm like, I got to see this movie. I'll go to two movies this weekend, which is tough when you got kids. But I pulled it off because I just wanted to see this so bad. But I'm right there with you, Stuart. I saw it. I'm like, well, that is not what I expected. We'll talk about it. But this movie takes a sharp left when you think it's going to go right.
1: I'd heard good things about it. And... Remember, we reviewed It Follows and we reviewed Get Out, and these were films that really impressed me that were this type of sleeper horror hits that came out early in the year. And so I got really excited when I heard of Hereditary. I was planning on watching it with or without this show. Then we reviewed The Witch, and I have to say that now...
0: Not so excited.
1: I was being dragged by, like, fingernail claw marks were being left in the floor for me to watch this movie. I was like... Enough with this elevated bullshit. <laughs> I'm just tired of it. The Witch, it was a weaker, or not recommend, but man, the longer I've sat with The Witch, the more it just infuriates me in certain regards, and I didn't want to watch that movie again. And here I see this movie hereditary. It's got a little girl and a mother on the cover, and I'm just getting witch vibes off of it. I came in a little bit reluctant.
0: I mean, similar to The Witch, there is a big chasm between critics and audiences. This is another one where the critics loved it. And, you know, there's websites where you could gauge it as an audience and it didn't do so well with audiences. But A24's most successful film, bigger than Lady Bird, which had an Oscar bump.
3: Hmm. Bigger than Moonlight, which won the Oscar.
0: (laughs) Kind of. We're still not sure if it won.
3: (laughs) That is a surprise. But again, this is a studio I watched. These are people that anything that they put their imprint on, I will see. That's how much I implicitly trust their quality control. Not to say that I'm going to love it. I oftentimes wrestle with it, but I know it's worth watching. And that's really all that I can ask when I go see an indie movie these days is please let it have more than preciousness. And Hereditary did. And of course, the thing about this one that makes it also hard to discuss is that it comes from someone I don't know. I don't think the world knows much about ari ashter
0: i gotta say these first-time horror directors jordan peele yeah he had a lot of tv but then he does get out with the witch that was a first-time director i guess horror is the go-to it's always been like the most profitable genre but i'm shocked with these very artistic films coming out from these first-time directors and their horror films
1: yeah i looked him up he'd done shorts
3: and that's it so i didn't know what to expect He's a grad of AFI, you know, which is the program Lynch came from. It is a very auteur-driven school. I do think of it as being where we've had a lot of distinctive voices coming out of that. So it's interesting, and I wonder what would have happened if he had to take a studio paycheck gig. Instead, what I feel like we got was a film school movie that was funded with enough cash to get people like Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne. But we are seeing something that doesn't go through the usual machinations of Hollywood. Hollywood thinking. And for better or for worse, that's part of the reason why it feels so different than your standard issue horror. Toni Collette, we're going to be talking about her pretty soon with The Sixth
1: Sense. You know she's Australian? Yeah, I saw Muriel's Wedding in theaters. That was like her (laughs) breakout film, and I thought it looked really good, and I went and saw it, and my memory is actually not liking it that well, thinking it was a little too weird. But I've seen her in stuff, but I never really thought of her as an above-the-title Star.
0: Yeah, I was surprised because Little Miss Sunshine, I thought she was great in that. My wife was a big fan of United States of Terror, where she plays a woman with multiple personalities. Then I go to watch the extras for this. I'm like, she's got an accent. She's Australian. Blew me away. My wife didn't even know, and she watched United States of Terror, which is like
3: three or four seasons. And it's been forgotten by now, but that Fright Night reboot, she was in that. I think she has two sides. I do think she is known for kind of quirky comedy, indie Sundance kind of comedies, but also has genre cred. If you're making a horror film, she was in a big one with Sixth Sense, Fright Night. She is capable of doing both. She's not snobby about it. She's happy to go in this direction.
0: You say she's not snobby. She didn't want to do like these heavy dramas anymore. She said... I just want to do some light, easy comedies. But then she saw the script for this. She's like, well, I got to do this now.
1: That is hysterical because a light, funny comedy, this
0: is not. (laughs) No, this is an intense family drama horror film.
3: Yeah. And I do think Arnie is right to be afraid. If he doesn't want to see elevated horror, that is the category I would put it in. This is a horror movie, but it is also a drama. It is a family dynamic. It's like if ordinary people had some demons in it. Now, I like Ordinary
1: People. It's funny, because I brought that movie up on a couple of recent podcasts just randomly. It's, for some reason, been in my mind. We've been talking a lot about elevated and psychological movies, I guess, and I brought that up, and I definitely saw that in this as we were watching it. It does feel like Ordinary People, the horror film, but I'm going to reiterate something. Every show, we start by saying that there will be plot spoilers And Harsh Language.
0: (laughs) Yeah, big spoilers coming up for this one.
1: Oh my God. If you have any interest in this movie, stop. Hit stop now. And it pains me to tell people to stop listening. But stop listening. There's no turning back. Go watch it. This show is the conversation for after you've watched the movie. I can guarantee that. No matter what we recommend or what we don't recommend... I recommend you hit stop if you haven't seen it and go watch it before you listen further. If you're interested in our conversation, spend the two hours and so. It's not a short movie, but go spend that two hours, watch the movie, and then come back just trust me on that one
3: yeah and uh, if you need an endorsement i'll go ahead and said i liked it when i first saw it but i wasn't sure what i had just seen and so this is the show where we're going to try and figure that out i'm still not sure about that some <laughs> details i'm still like yeah we're going to try and piece this movie together but i don't mind go ahead and saying i think people should see it and I, arnie i think you should give them a plot now
1: ellen lee is dead She was older, she suffered from dementia, and earlier in her life, her mental illness had her alienating most of those around her, including her family. So while Ellen's daughter Annie eulogizes her mother, she doesn't miss her, per se. Annie is played by Toni Collette. She's an artist that makes models kind of similar to the town replica in Beetlejuice. She lives with her husband Steve Graham, played by Gabriel Byrne, her pothead 16-year-old son Peter, played by Alex Wolfe, and her awkward 13-year-old daughter, Charlie, played by Millie Shapiro. The family seems fairly normal, even after Ellen's death, but Annie is having trouble coping and even sneaks out to go to a grief support group. This isn't her first bout with mental problems, as she had a tendency to sleepwalk and even woke up one night in her son's room. She'd covered herself, Peter and Charlie, in turpentine and was about to light them all on fire, committing suicide, as her brother had. And now stop listening for god's (laughs) sake stop listening annie's grief intensifies greatly when charlie dies the girl was having anaphylactic shock after eating a cake that had nuts in it peter tried to get charlie to the hospital but charlie stuck her head out the car window to get air and was decapitated when peter swerves to miss a dead deer on the road Killing all my theories about what was going to happen next.
0: Exactly. <laughs> 30 minutes in, I have no idea what's going to happen in this film. She
3: ain't Damien? I'm so confused.
1: <laughs> now everyone in the family is on edge with Annie blaming Peter for Charlie's death and Steve siding with Peter against his wife. But things take a weird change when Annie meets Joan, a woman played by Anne Dowd who claims to have been in the grief classes with Annie, though Annie doesn't remember her. Joan takes Annie to a seance where Annie is able to communicate with Charlie's spirit. Charlie does seem to possess Annie. Then things continue to escalate, and Peter starts to see things, including losing control of his body and slamming his head into his school desk. Steve confronts Annie about what she's done to Peter's mental state, but Annie is babbling about Charlie's spirit and needing to burn Charlie's sketchbook. Annie had tried to burn it earlier, but she caught on fire along with the book, so she asks Steve to throw it in. He refuses, so she does it, prepared to sacrifice herself, But Steve bursts into flames and dies. Peter comes home to find his father's body smoking on the ground and his mother waiting to attack him. She's now possessed and climbing the walls like a spider and moving at super speed. So Peter hides in the attic where he finds several naked cult members. Annie flies in and beheads herself with piano wire while Peter is captured by the cult. So here's the truth of it. Annie's mother Ellen was a cult member. Joan was a friend of Ellen's. The cult worshiped a demon called Payman. Payman needed to inhabit the body of a male host. Ellen had tried to put Payman in Peter as a baby, but because of the estranged relationship with Annie, Ellen wasn't able to. But Annie and Ellen reconciled as Charlie was born, so Payman was put temporarily in Charlie's body. Ever since Ellen died, the cult has planned to kill the Grams and put Payman in Peter's body, which happens in the last few frames. As credits roll. And that's a hell of a last movie dump. I just want to say. Yeah,
0: it sounded like you were a crazy man towards the end there. Just naming everything that happens in this film.
1: It's kind of a hard movie to summarize without starting with the spoilers about Ellen being a cult member and worshipping a demon called Payman. But I did have to watch this movie twice. I watched it and I'm like, okay, let's do that again.
0: Yeah, watching it the second time, knowing where it's going, you could look for all these little hints about this payment cult and catch a whole lot more and have a better sense of where this film is going. Because like you said in that summary, at the 30 minute mark, it totally throws you for a loop.
3: I also just wanted to take a look at the family as well, because I didn't suspect that for the longest time there actually was occult demon practices going on. And so what I wanted to see was not only is how subtly is that stuff introduced, but also what if this isn't a horror movie? What if this is just horror is the salt rim on the margarita glass and what we're really drinking is ordinary people. Well, you mean the movie. We're not just drinking the people. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Ordinary people, the Robert Redford film from 1980s.
1: I went into this movie knowing nothing about it. I'd seen a trailer, but I couldn't remember anything in the trailer. I didn't rewatch the trailer before watching it. So I turn on this film and yeah, it really is a drama. And I was thinking ordinary people a lot. And I knew that people told me this was a horror film. So in the back of my mind, I kept going with these theories of where's the horror, what's the horror going to be. But, It was definitely not a horror movie by the classical sense. You don't have your opening scream-like kill just to set the mood. This is going to live and die by its drama, not by its scares.
0: Yeah, you go about an hour until you get the seance. And I feel like that's really where the horror elements come in. Yeah. There's a little girl that's going to get decapitated, but it's a family trauma, drama, like dealing with all this death. And I don't think it's shot like a normal horror film. Like this house, it could be really creepy looking. And it's this old house in the woods, but like the lights are always on. Like we've been doing all this Argento stuff. And I'm like every scene in those Argento films, the lights are off. It's dark. And you got weird lighting to make it look spooky. And that's what you do in horror movies. This one. Nope. Lights are on, it's bright, it's not like The Conjuring or something like that, even though it's a house that could seem really spooky, it's not. And just so it throws you, for the first hour especially, this could just be about a family dealing with grief.
1: It's certainly not your classical horror cinematography, but I was getting like a Rosemary's Baby kind of vibe, some of that 70s horror, because what you have is well-lit spaces, but big, empty spaces. You have people wandering around alone in this big house, And so that, to me, I felt like the visual look of this film always let me know that there was something possibly going on. Like, it just kept me uneasy. Now, you still could keep me uneasy in a drama, but... I just know that it was a little unsettling the way they were filming.
0: And I think a part of that is the score. Because this is, again, unlike most current horror films, I don't think there's a lot of jump scares in this one either. There's a couple, but most of it's atmosphere. And that score is just going throughout this opening of this film when it's really just a drama, but it's such an airy score. You're on the edge of your seat waiting for something horrible to happen.
1: It made me really nervous because it's like a heartbeat. And it just goes, and it doesn't stop, it doesn't accelerate, it doesn't have a crescendo. There's just this noise behind it, just constantly, and it is very effectively unnerving.
3: Not only that, but the sound design itself, and definitely some of the camera tricks in here, are going to disorient you, because things that you think you hear are actually something else. Like we'll be listening to a clucking sound and we think it's a clock and then we find out it's actually the vocal tick of Charlie or we'll be pulling in and looking at a diorama of a house and then all of a sudden we realize drama is unfolding in there and that this is actually happening inside the house.
0: And you want to talk about layers. Yeah, there's dollhouses that look like the house that Annie builds. You you got this huge set that's really just a dollhouse that the movie makers created. And then you also got this whole theme of Greek plays and literature where what is more tragic, to be in control of your life or not to be in control of your life? So I just feel like there is all these, like, literally at one point, we're going to see one of Annie's creations where it's just houses stacked on top of each other. And I feel like that theme runs throughout this film.
3: Yeah, it's the interplay, is that she's creating precious little worlds where real drama that has happened to her, she's restaging with miniatures, and then all of a sudden, sometimes we're watching the drama and we're suddenly aware of the proscenium and that we're watching it through a stage of some kind. And you're right, there'll even be dialogue once we get to the high school about Sophocles. And it is very postmodern in that way. I do know this director cited one of his big creative references was Peter Greenaway. And I don't feel like many people know that director anymore. Uh, his most famous film is The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, he made everyone watch that movie, even though it's, I guess, not a horror film. I've never seen it.
3: I can endure but I've seen many of his works because they are so beautiful. He is essentially a painter and he kind of treats film like a sketchbook. And so there's always almost like a laundry list of things that he does. And it feels very pretentious but also very beautiful. He did Shakespeare's The Tempest. He gave Ewan McGregor one of his earliest roles in Pillow Book. It's kind of like watching a living painting unfold and sometimes there's a plot. And I wonder in the way that this is staged, it's very pretentious the way that this movie is put together. Does it earn its pretensions?
0: You talk about pretensions, I'm thinking like Wes Anderson, who I love. I love everything meticulously designed and placed. I don't feel like this is in that same category. Yeah, there is a lot of thought put behind it. but it is forcefully pushing a theme like with exclamation marks throughout when you're looking for it. And I don't have a problem with that.
1: Here's what I think really helps it earn that. The actors they cast. When I saw Gabriel Byrne was in this, my first thought was, well, that guy from Usual Suspects, I haven't seen him since End of Days. And Tony Collette I knew, and these kids I didn't know. I hadn't seen Matilda on Broadway, so...
0: Yeah, that actress, she got a honorary Tony for that role as Matilda. And I should say, she is very strange-looking. They did play up. There is makeup involved with that. She doesn't actually look like that, though she has an unconventional look.
1: Yeah, I had to look that up because I'm like, did they find a girl who just looks like she'd been hit repeatedly in the face with a frying pan no they used makeup and things to play it up but this cast pulls me in with the atmosphere and everything yeah it is pretentious but that's not always a bad thing if you can live it up it's like going all in you know when you're playing poker if you're gonna be this pretentious you're going all in your hand better be strong and he's got four aces in this cast
3: Yeah, I'll agree with that. One of the things I really keyed into this viewing was how Annie has recreated her own childhood family dynamic. We will learn as we attend this funeral, her mother ruled the roost. The dad barely factors and barely gets mentioned, died before she died. And Ellen, what she said, what she does is the way that it went for Annie as a child Equally true now that she's raising her own family. Her husband, Steve, barely gets a word in. He's a therapist. He's usually listening and he is usually letting her have the floor.
0: I didn't even know Steve was a therapist until I watched the deleted scenes and he gets mentioned to one of them. And the deleted scenes is a lot more Peter and Steve, who I feel they are more passive in this cut of the film. But there are scenes where they become a little bit more active participants, but I don't think that's the right instinct. I like how this is set up. Hereditary, these men are being treated the same way that the grandmother treated the men in her life
3: yeah and she has two children a boy and a girl she had a brother who died by hanging named charles and now she has a daughter that is named charlie and a son that's older named peter that she doesn't get along with very much she's much closer to charlie than she is to peter and so is that hereditary is that something in her family some issue she had with her brother dying and the dynamic that it created for her in childhood is that part of the reason why she can't connect to her teenage son
1: the movie being titled hereditary it's funny because we had a conversation when we picked this movie and we're all like oh we're doing heredity (laughs) none of us noticed the r in it that was me well no, it was me too yeah i've made the
0: mistake too
1: (laughs) so i never thought thought about what the title meant until I'm watching this and we get this opening at the funeral and it actually starts with the obituary and I read that like first of all it's really tiny white text on a big black screen it was a little bit difficult to watch on a television and then I'm thinking that is it going to be her coming back from the dead what is it about this woman but we get Annie giving the eulogy which is a bit unusual to have the family member eulogizing the parent. But she talks about being difficult, and she talks very soon about mental illness, and all of a sudden it hits me, I thought coming in hereditary, maybe there was going to be a disease or a pathogen or something, and now I'm thinking, this is about mental illness, isn't it? This is going to be about mental illness passed from grandmother to mother to daughter.
0: That's what I thought it was about going in. Oh, okay. This is, yeah, about that DNA getting handed down. I don't think that's what it's actually about. And it's interesting just being married and having someone with a more objective view, like there'll be things I'll be ranting. I hate when my dad would do this when I was a kid. And then my wife's like, well, you do that same thing. And so I think that's what this film is really getting into. It's not necessarily the DNA, though. That's what you think it is. That's the red herring of the film. It is all those other weird quirks that we carry on.
3: I think it's an interplay between three things. I mean, I do think, yeah, the modern scientific approach might be, what genes have you passed along that would include mental illness? What of it is learned behavior? And then what of it is old world, this family is just cursed. That's where the demons and stuff come in. There's different ways that you can look at it, and certainly when you look at plays and tragedies of ancient Greece, they didn't have that modern psychology. They looked at things about being fate and demons, gods, and so there's that reading to this as well.
0: And I would reading up on payment like because this is a real occult demon figure and from what i could tell it it comes from a dutch occultist and physician from the 1500s and what's interesting is he was against witch trials he's like we got to stop accusing women of being witches and he really coined this idea of mental illness and say no these women aren't witches there's just something wrong with their brains but he's also really into like studying demons so i do know the director researched all this occult stuff and i do think that is in there so any big payment fans out there there this works on multiple levels (laughs) i
1: thought i was pretty up on my evil but i'd never heard of payment the thing that kept going through my head though was something stewart said during the witch i knew this was going to be elevated horror and he said one thing about elevated horror is when you can have the conversation of is the horror real or is it in somebody's head and so that is been my reading of this movie through two watchings you could definitely take this as We're going to take everything we see on the screen as very literal, that we have an objective narrator and what we see people climbing on walls, people spontaneously combusting ghosts, all real. Or I think this movie could be viewed just as equally as our subjective narrator is insane and we're seeing everything through the point of view of Annie. And seeing what Annie sees or later on what Peter sees as the mental illness is passed down to him as well.
3: And again, I think perspective is blurred. We oftentimes have a hard time reading who is the point of view character. I tend to look at Toni Collette because she's giving an incredible performance and because she is a star and this is her movie. But when it's all over, I think we realize it's also Peter's story as well.
0: And the first time I watched this, I did look for that more allegorical reading. Is this an allegory of what it's like as Peter's developing schizophrenia? Which is very clever when you watch the film and you go back when Annie is at her group and she's talking about her brother was schizophrenic and thought mom was trying to put people into him. Well, she was because that's what happens in this story. But I'm like, oh, okay. is this about him dealing with that schizophrenia and hearing voices and just developing that? And this is just a scary way to portray that.
1: My reading on this movie the entire time was this is all in her head until the very last scene where I went, nope,
3: or maybe not. (laughs) Right. And that was exactly where I was, which is, again, why you have to have that second watching, because it believes in the occult. It has a stronger reading and feel for the occult than I was prepared for it to do. There's a lot of stuff early
1: in the film that I didn't recognize as horror. There's a triangle painted ground in. I couldn't tell if it was paint or if it was like somebody got a Dremel out and carved it into the floor of the old woman's bedroom.
0: I mean, Annie's wearing that payment symbol around her neck, and we'll see that throughout this film.
3: And what is that depicting? It looks like something phallic and triplicate. It might be. It's an actual payment symbol
0: that the director discovered while just researching this.
1: I know what I'm getting Marjorie for Christmas. (laughs) Nice necklace.
0: (laughs) The triple phallic necklace.
1: But the real sign of creepiness is Charlie, right? First of all, again, they just made her look creepy. And I couldn't even get a bead on her age because movies also play with this. I'm like, she could be 8 to 15, somewhere in that big range. And she finds a dead bird and cuts its head off and is making figurines out of it. I'm like, this is our serial killer.
0: Yeah, that's what you think when she cuts that head off. We'll see her making these figures, and you go, hereditary. Her mom's an artist. She's carrying that on. Maybe that's why her mom has more affection for Charlie than Peter, who they have a very tense relationship. We'll find out why later on. But yeah, once she cuts that head off, I'm like, okay, here's your Damien. I found this
1: really funny, and I was bummed that I didn't know about this on release. As part of viral marketing, Charlie... studio actually opened up an etsy store where you could buy her little (laughs) built figurines and they sold 24 of them to an unsuspecting public none with actual bird heads but you can go to etsy and look for crafts by charlie g and you can see the 24 dolls that they sold on there that was a little bit creepy too what about the mother's art? Is there anybody who's like, I want to go see miniatures of strangers' homes?
3: Yeah, totally. I think I totally did miniatures.
0: Yeah, if you've been to a museum, there's something for whatever weird art you're into. So yeah, I don't think this is too weird. To, yeah, have miniatures out there.
3: They're autobiographical. I mean, it's like someone painting a self-portrait, but doing so in a dollhouse.
0: They're so creepy because you hear this story about how when Annie had Charlie, she finally reconciled with the mother and the mother's like, I need to feed it. And then you see that miniature of the mother reaching over Annie to take Charlie with her breast hanging out. And you're like, ooh, this is... Really weird and creepy.
3: Yeah, Charlie is the favorite. That is the thing that is stated when they come home from this funeral and Charlie is moping by herself that she was the favorite one of Ellen. Is she grieving because grandma is gone? We know that Peter didn't really care. He's kind of tuned out. He's a pothead. He just doesn't care about his family in general. And Steve is so much the therapist that he's concerned about how everyone else is feeling. He's not going to tell you how he's feeling. So it's really for mother and daughter to process What's happened here and why we're paying so much attention to Charlie is because she's special needs, right? I mean, I was reminded of a video I watched in health class so many years ago on progeria. There's something about the way she looks that looked prematurely aged. Like maybe she is the reincarnation of Ellen or something. I actually thought she looked, and I mean no ill to this little girl.
1: They did play this up, but my immediate reaction was like a slightly toned-down version of Eric Stoltz in Mask.
3: Yeah, there's facial deformity. I wasn't sure if there was learning disability because she's doing things like sleeping out in the cold in a treehouse, and most people know if it's cold, you better go inside. And then, of course, the vocal tick. You know, the thing that they really will exploit later for jump scares.
0: And Aster has said, and I got it on the second viewing more than the first time because I just this movie threw me for a loop the first time, but Payman has always been in her since Ellen got a hold of her. Payman has been in her and has been controlling her. I guess he can't control the DNA because she still has a peanut allergy, which is going to be fatal. Or maybe that was all part of the plot of this cult. Who knows? But yeah, she has never been a normal girl, according to the director, at least. That was kind of my reading
1: on the second watching as well. And we sort of get that because she's sitting in class. They're supposed to be taking a test. And she's just
0: kind of staring off into space. Yeah, she's working on one of her little dolls.
3: I believe she's making her father burned, is what it looks like to me. Oh, that what she was doing? Yeah.
1: I saw her staring at scissors on the teacher's desk, and I'm like, is she going to go
3: insane? What's going to happen here? All the things she's making, she's obviously psychic. I assume that just from seeing her, and characters in these kinds of movies always have clairvoyance. So, the fact that when she asked her mother, what's going to happen when you die, who's going to take care of me, I think, well... Tony Collette is definitely marked. She's marked <laughs> for death. And maybe this little girl will be in some way responsible for it, or at the very least will know when it's coming. Does she know her own death is coming? She's drawing that bird head with the crown on it. She seems on some level. And again, maybe it's subconscious. Maybe none of these characters can really realize what's going on. That's something that's said uh, within the movie is tragedy. Yeah, that's the
0: Greek tragedy is that they have no control of their fate. And that is, depending on your view, more tragic than if you could control it.
3: Yeah, so maybe Charlie is just a part of that tragedy in the sense that she is compulsed to do things and draw things that are of her own doom. That she is, in essence, in seeing this bird die, seeing her own decapitation later that day. Oh, I go a step further. If this is Payman, he wants
1: it. He wants out of the Charlie body. He wants into the Peter body. He wants this ceremony. And so, more than clairvoyance... This is a plan. He knows what the cult is going to do. He knows how everything's going to go. One thing... That I read on IMDb Trivia, but did not catch on two watchings. The telephone pole that decapitates her later on has a payment symbol on it.
0: Yeah, you didn't notice that? I The first time I watched, I'm like, what does that mean? Okay, I was too
1: busy picking my jaw up off the fucking floor. <laughs>
0: well, Peter <laughs> is forced to take Charlie to this high school party. Yeah, and they just drive by that signpost. And when the car goes by, there is that symbol there. And I'm like, huh? Tony Collette had that necklace with that same symbol. What does that mean? Something's going on.
3: Okay. Yes. Payment may be in her. If you're inclined to believe an old world superstitious reading, she may be possessed by a demon, but she is not payment. This is a little girl. I don't believe that she's faking it the way that Damien will be like, oh, I'm just a good little kid while I saw off the branches on the treehouse and make my friends fall to their death. She just wants to have a nice life right I mean I don't get the sense that she's plotting to kill herself or to kill someone else she's not evil is my point
0: no I don't think she's evil and I do think she's evil
3: you think that she is consciously aware that she is a a satanic demon jumping into the body of her brother yeah oh I do not I don't read it that way at all
0: yeah I never got that sense the way this character is played she's very aloof very disconnected she's
3: too human
0: yeah
1: I see I think she's not human. She's very cold. I mean, the fact that she sleeps out in the cold, but also she doesn't want to go to the party. She doesn't want to interact with anybody. When I see a little girl cut a head off a dead bird, there's something creepy as fuck about that.
0: And I thought that was the turning point for her, that this is when she is going to go Damien. But you know what? She's got some kind of physical deformity in the film that they play up. So I'm like, yeah, maybe she's shy. She doesn't want to be around people. She'd rather be an artist and be alone creating things, creating a world where she's more comfortable because she feels like an outsider. She can't eat things without making sure there's not nuts in them. She's weird looking, all this stuff. I didn't take that as evil.
3: Yeah, no, exactly. She is a little girl that might have a demon inside her that is, yeah, playing the waiting game. And so she's two at once. And I think that's true for a lot of the characters. I think that might also be true for Tony Collette and certainly for Peter. It's like they don't know what's waiting for them, but on some level they do. I do like the way that they drop her peanut allergy earlier when they're
1: going to the viewer. They're like, do you have the EpiPen and having her have cake? Are you sure there's no nuts in it? It at least feels natural knowing people with peanut allergies and people with children of peanut allergies. It's a conversation you hear a million times, but you're watching a movie. I'm like, that's going to come into play. Yeah,
0: I thought it was a little obvious. And when she's at that party, I'm like, come on, you, you got a nut allergy. You're not researching this stuff and you're not carrying your EpiPen with you. But maybe that is payment involvement here. He's like, leave the EpiPen behind. You're going to have some nuts tonight.
3: Yeah, again, I don't sense that she's suicidal. I sense that she's a little girl at her brother's party that is cringing from embarrassment. And we know that her go-to is food, specifically chocolate. She'll pull out that chocolate bar just to give herself some kind of comfort. And it's just a brief shot of someone dicing up nuts while they're making that chocolate cake. You wouldn't necessarily know they were so finely ground that it has the allergy in it. The theme is, if you were paying more attention, you could have avoided this. He said he wasn't going to go drinking. Well, he's getting stoned. The point is he's not paying attention to his sister, and she's not paying attention to what's being put in her chocolate, and consequently, they have to flee this party and get to the hospital. Now, the way this
1: scene is shot, you see her kind of gasping for air and writhing around the back seat. You see him driving. You see her roll down the window. Now, I knew something was going to happen here. I didn't know what. The way she was Fumbling for that window, I thought maybe she was going to have the car door open, which I actually had happened to me when I was six. (laughs) Of course, no seatbelts in the 70s. I thought maybe she was going out that way. Then the papers start flying around. Peter gets distracted. So I'm thinking car accident. She doesn't have a seatbelt on. She's going to fly through. I never saw that they would decay. Capitate her she's on the cover I didn't think she was getting out of this film anyway I thought she'd be there the whole time when her head hit that post we've talked about how here in the Midwest people don't usually make noises during films we'll laugh a little bit we don't applaud at the end because the projectionist did good job when this happened I'm in a, my house and I just go I just like an involuntary guttural Ooh! happened when i saw that
0: i didn't know there was going to be decapitation i knew from the hype there's people that said they were physically revolted by something in this film i didn't know what it was i knew something gross was coming but it is just so sudden and because your expectation is she's going to be the evil demon running around yeah when she loses her head wow just shocked i don't know what this film is anymore
1: It's an instant recommend for this moment for getting the reaction from me. Whatever I think about the rest of this movie to get a reaction like that. Recommend.
3: Yeah. What Ari Aster has done is recreated the psycho shower scene. Yes. He has actually managed to do that for our generation. We usually have everything spoiled and somehow I didn't know about this. I'm hoping the secret was kept from most people that come to this film. And it's just devastating for lots of reasons. Of course, it's a small child being decapitated. That in and of itself, horrific. And two, all of our theories about what she might represent and what was going to happen next out the window with her head yeah and
1: they don't pull the punches on this either i mean we're gonna see the next morning the head's rotting with bugs on it i mean that is truly the most classical horror thing as far as gore and things go is that but also peter is in shock he stops the car and you don't know what he's gonna do is he gonna call nine one one? what's he gonna do he drives home and gets in bed which I understand. When you're in total shock like that, you're not responsible for your own actions. You do things that may not be logical.
0: And this is what I like about elevated horror, because this is not what would happen in a typical horror movie. This is a human drama dealing with grief and shock. Like, I am just amazed. You watch Peter just drive home get out of the car, get into bed, go to sleep. And then when you got to hear Annie screaming and crying when she goes out to the car to go get something, I'm like, forget that this is a horror movie. This is just a great drama at this point.
1: The next morning where it's all told, the camera stays on Peter who's in bed. And you just hear the parents getting ready for their day and going out to the car. And Marjorie's watching this women. we're like, is the body in the car? Oh my God, the body's in the car. So they're <laughs> yes. going to go out there and find their decapitated. Oh my God. And then you just hear that shriek. That shriek hit me like a follow-up punch. It was like a one-two jab. The one being the decapitation and the two being the very real reaction, I would think. I mean, hopefully nobody ever knows, but the pure destruction of soul that tony collette portrays on screen the anguished whales i felt so bad for her and I knew she was going to blame Peter and I knew I couldn't blame Peter
0: I'm just going to say it now yeah you get that scene where she's rolling around on the ground saying I just want to die give the woman the Oscar now why do we got to wait till February just she is amazing in this film I don't know what hereditary would be without Tony Collette just like I don't know what well I do know what The Shining would be without Jack Nicholson re-experience that it's not good but Tony Collette just so amazing in this and just sells the horror the sorrow the grief everything.
3: I agree with what you guys are both saying, but I also want to underline that Ari Oster is doing something very interesting by, obviously, Tony Collette would come to her son and ask questions in some kind of state, but we are never to see those moments. The way that he will frame this drama, it is as if neither will speak to the other about what has occurred. And that creates incredible tension that will carry on for the next half hour until they finally sit down to a dinner table and she can finally voice what's in her mind. But to know that there's this much between them, the elephant in the room is the severed head of the youngest member of this household, that is an incredible weight to carry for the audience and for the characters for 30 minutes.
0: Yeah, I feel like there is a tension for the next 30 minutes because you're waiting. Right. Why is no one talking about this? You, You had a dead, decapitated daughter. Why is everyone just in their rooms? We need to talk about this. What is there to say? I don't know, but it feels like that's something you should talk about.
3: Yeah, everything to say is that when something tragic happens, we as a society need to talk. I mean, we're built on talk. We're podcasters. Of course, we are inclined to talk. But this is a dysfunctional household where people make art instead of talking or they smoke dope instead of talking and because yes for lots of reasons we can only speculate what peter must be thinking we see him avoiding he comes home really late after school he in a deleted scene goes to sleep in the treehouse not realizing his mom was already there he is doing his best to not have that moment with his mother some of it is obviously oh my god i feel so bad that i killed her some of it is that i don't know if my mom can handle it because she's you know, on her best day, hanging by a thread. Of
1: course, I just can't even imagine. Again, we're looking at the movie Ordinary People, which does deal with the death of a sibling and a an
3: adolescent teenage
1: boy visiting a therapist.
3: It's the same dynamic. The more popular child is the one that died, and the one that survives has incredible survivor's remorse and guilt. And fights with his mother all the time. Yeah. And it just,
1: yeah, it is that... and. You think about it, even if you were the favorite child, if you decapitated your sibling, even on accident, it's going to be really hard for the parents to get over that. I could very easily see a 50-50 chance of that turning adversarial. And now, I'm into this movie as a drama. Yes, the horrific thing is you have a decapitated little girl. That's horror enough. But I'm into this family. I'm into their dynamic. He has suckered me in. I can't look away from this film. It could just be a drama from here on out. But these people and that scenario coming out of nowhere, it's so rare that I actually like a car accident death in a movie. I think of so many movies where they just decide to turn on a dime. Oops, look at the randomness of life. We got hit
3: by a car, but this one got me. I mean, I like dramas, and Manchester by the Sea did this recently. I mean, I definitely would be cool if this movie were just that film. I see a lot of those provocative, dysfunctional family It's what you usually expect to come out of Sundance, not a horror film. But I want to point out, they have laced this all with horror moments throughout all of this. From the earliest beginnings, Annie thinks she sees her mother's ghost in the work study when she turns off the light. And Charlie thought she saw... Ellen out in a field by a burning fire. The husband even has gotten a call that the grave has been dug up. Someone has desecrated Ellen's tombstone and dug up the body. They have been telling us, if you're paying attention, and again that's the big theme of this movie, that Ellen is here among them doing some mischief.
0: And I'm definitely seeing a lot more of these. Of course, I saw the ghost mom and the fire and all that the first time I watched this, but there are other little things that I'm picking up the second time, knowing where this story is going. Like, at one point Peter is just smoking some weed underneath the bleachers and his throat tightens. It feels like, Oh, that payment or Charlie has now gone into him. And he's starting to inherit some of those traits that she had, which is what the story is going to tell us that. Yeah. Charlie or payment goes into Peter by the end of this. And we'll see those little things throughout.
1: I had no idea where it was going, but I thought maybe he'd be the next to die. I don't know this actor and physically he just did not look like the son of their union. He doesn't look like their offspring. Yes. He has some <laughs> eyebrows that just are a gravel. What's really funny is apparently this is the second time he has played Gabriel Byrne's son. So if somebody thinks they look alike, I don't think they look alike at all. I But I really thought he might be the next to go. It's Gabriel Byrne. I honestly thought he would step up in this movie more than he ever does. He seems to have come in, but like, I'm not going to do an American accent. I'm not going to diet. I'm going to come in. I'm going to give great line readings, but
3: I'm not here all that much anyway.
0: No, the men in this family are not the focal point. Even though Payman wants that male body, it's all about the women.
3: Yeah, the focus of that. And again, that you're thinking about matrilineally, following that genetic line. Yeah, is this something that has been passed on not through Gabriel Byrne, but through Tony Collette's character that's afflicting Peter once he's now yeah, having visions, possibly schizophrenic, or more likely, if we're to take the ending literally, demonic possession. And the next surprise is... I think the movie's weakest. I know very well Aunt Lydia is evil, but they want us to think that Joan is just a friendly person at the support group who is going to help Annie through some processing of this grief. Who's Aunt Lydia? And Dowd is in Handmaid's Tale, which is a popular show on Hulu.
0: Yeah, and she's amazing in that. When I saw this, I'm like, she looks really familiar. Who is that? And I go to IMDb after the film. I'm like, that was Aunt Lydia? Looks amazing. Throw some makeup on her and do her hair a little bit. Aunt Dowd, great. Like, Aunt Lydia is horrifying.
3: I highly recommend The Leftovers. She was incredible in that. Also a villain character, although a complicated one. And a movie called Compliance. She should have won the Oscar for She was absolutely fantastic. Loved to see her in anything, but she's such a big presence to me. Again, maybe if you don't know her, you just think, oh, I'm not paying attention to this character because she's outside of this weirdo. She seems like a flake at first. And what does she understand about all the terrible things going on in this dollhouse? But in fact, she knows everything because she's Ellen's old friend and she is going to make sure that That the transference of payment takes place. Here's what I will
1: ding this movie on even after two watchings. And maybe you guys will disagree with me. I'm the newbie here. I'm the one who's just seen this film for the first time. So my opinion here may change. But I feel some of the storytelling regarding Joan and the cult and their relation to Ellen is a little too obtuse, a little too clunky. And it comes about inorganically like when they go to Joan's house and she has some weird doormat that looks like a very thin pillow and she talks about having bought it at a craft show and but Annie recognizes it as her mother's embroidery
0: right yeah I thought that it was pretty obvious that they were telling us something was going on
1: I knew something was going on I feel like when we are finally told about payment it's too late there's stuff dropped in the models that Annie is building there are all these Latin words put up there. I don't know what any of them mean. They're throughout the
0: house. They're on the walls throughout the house. And she's seen them. I think they're just creepy words. Some of them actually do mean stuff. They're just old Latin or whatever. But yeah, I think it just gives this vibe that Annie and this family is not in control. There is something pushing them along.
3: To your point, Arnie, I think it's definitely worth asking, is this movie too loose in the editing? It's over two hours. It's somebody's first film. Did he not have control over this? Or is he a genius for creating all of these misdirections? It's his first film. It's hard to know. If I had more to look to... If I could say, oh, that's his style, he usually does that, that might help you process this. But because we have really nothing to point to, I don't know. I can say that I never feel bored by this film, but I do wonder in processing all of the red herrings and just all of the meticulous details... Are they all important? I know they're not all important to me, but maybe to someone else's reading because this movie invites multiple interpretations. Other people say, oh no, you can't cut all of this stuff about the seance. That's so super important. I do agree it's the least interesting part of the movie, partly because I'm on to Joan. I know what she's trying to do. I figured Joan was something. The fact
1: that Annie drove to that support group again and what I didn't catch till the second viewing, did you guys notice that With the mail, they like have this shot of the mail being delivered after the funeral, and there's a pamphlet for visiting a psychic.
0: Yeah, no, it's a a flyer for a seance. This cult is true in all these different things to try to push this along. So, we got to get a seance somehow. So, maybe they'll show up at this one. No, that didn't work. So, now we need Joan to like try to get Annie to participate in this seance. I mean, Aster said if. The plot to put the deer in the road to get Charlie decapitated didn't work. They had other plans to bring this about.
3: Yeah. We don't have the movie told from their perspective. And in fact, none of the characters that we're following, with the exception of Joan, who's popping up late and now we're into this film, have any insight into what's going on. So like they said about the Greek tragedy, we're watching people that can't read the signs. If they could, they would know what was happening and they could avoid it. But they're talking to a, it's called a seance, but really it's some other religious rite. It's obviously some incantation meant to help the spirit transfer from Charlie into Peter.
0: I love that. Yeah, there's a seance. You got to read these words. And Joan's like, be sure to read this when everyone's in the house. And everyone keeps like, Annie asks. And then Steve asks. What language is this? Which just feels, you know, something out of like Evil Dead. You got to read the evil spell to bring it there. But I do think it's funny. (laughs) Everyone just keeps saying, what language is this?
1: Yeah, I just thought it was going a different way. I thought it was going more exorcist and less Rob Zombie's Lords of Salem.
0: I haven't seen Lords of Salem. I got some exorcist off of it. I mean, again, there's things to look for. There's a light that you'll see, and that is Payman's spirit or whatever. And during the seance, that is going to enter into Annie.
1: That light that comes, it's like this laser light. It's almost like Michael Jackson's (laughs) Rock With You video from the 70s. You know what I thought that was? I thought that was fire because Annie had talked about almost lighting herself and Charlie and Peter on fire. She sleepwalked. She came in, she covered them all with the paint thinner. She was going to burn them all up. And so I thought this might be like this, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge or Donnie Darko, like all of vision in the last
3: moments. And this light you see is the blue flame that's spreading. <laughs> Actually, schizophrenics talk about seeing this kind of stuff all the time. It is a very good visual representation of schizophrenia. So just going to throw that out there. It's playing with you. I mean, payment makes the most sense by the end of this film, but you can have whatever reading you want. You can have an old world superstitious reading. You can have a psychological breakdown. You can look at these characters however you want. It's just tragic to me because at this point, Annie is trying very hard to bring her family together. In her mind, having a seance is going to bring them together. Steve is horrified. As a man of modern science, he doesn't want to have anything to do with this occult ritual. And Peter, of course, doesn't even want to see his mother. There's been so much that's gone between them. And when you find out that he woke up, yeah, as Arnie said, woke up one night to be covered in paint thinner with his mom striking a match. She will tell him, I never wanted to have you. I tried to miscarry. I didn't want you in my body. That's a lot to process. Yeah,
0: it gets heavy. Even though I think the second hour is when the horror really kicks in. You still get these moments. You get the confrontation between Annie and Peter at the dinner table right before the seance.
1: That is hard. That scene, as somebody who had some issues with parents, those fights were hard for me to watch. I really, they struck a chord in me that was like unpleasant
0: and then the reveal that yeah she tried to kill peter when he was in the womb like You don't need this horror stuff. This is a gripping drama of fucked up people.
3: But in in trying to make amends for that, because I truly believe that Annie doesn't want to feel that way. I think that's what it really is. She does feel that way. And she tells him, I wish I could forgive you, but I can't. But in trying to do so, maybe if Charlie is not gone, maybe if we can summon the spirit and have her here with us again Maybe that will be the thing to bring us together. It's actually tearing this family even further apart. Well, Annie is acting like a crazy woman. I mean, we
1: are being shown this movie a lot from Annie's point of view. And so we can understand her rationale about why she's acting the way she's acting. We see everything she sees. But if you just take a step back, imagine being Steve and coming home one day and your wife... Who has had some emotional troubles because lost her mother and her daughter in very short succession and is now babbling. It's like a manic depressive type of thing where now she's having this manic episode where she can't talk, she's talking so fast and she just can't stop talking and she's shaking and she's got everything going. Everybody has to come together and do this crazy thing right now. I've seen manic depressives, and this does not ring false.
3: Yeah, and again, I have sympathy for her when I put her story together. Of course she wouldn't want to have Peter. If you had the family dynamic that she did, to know that she could have a son that has schizophrenia, to remember what happened to her brother, and to know that her crazy mother couldn't wait to like get the baby out of her, she had to cut all of that out in order to even go through with it. I mean, her mom didn't allow her to miscarry, protected the child that much, But she kept the mother away from Peter, and that's probably why Payman isn't there from the inception, and thus why they have Charlie.
0: And you see Payman's influence, if you believe there is a Payman going on in this film. After this seance, I mean, you get this great scene. We've been told about the sleepwalking, the paint thinner, but you get this dream sequence where the ants are now covering Peter's face and Annie goes in there and they're arguing. And I just love how it cuts back and forth. And all of a sudden they're soaking wet. I'm like, wait, what just happened? Oh, this is the paint thinner now. And like flames start going up. It just starts going crazy once the seance happens and Payman gets more control of this family.
1: I thought it was Charlie, and she says Charlie. I love how when Joan does the seance, the first thing Andy does is look under the table. Where's the magnets?
0: Where's the trickery? And Steve will do the same thing.
3: It's the only thing this whole movie that tells me, oh, yeah, those two should be married. (laughs) But is she talking about Charlie, her daughter, or Charles? Again, I think part of the reason why she recoils from her son is that he probably looks and acts just like the brother that was schizophrenic that killed himself. And that's why she just can't love him the way that she loved Charlie. And so you ache for all of these people because who they are keeps them apart when you want to see them come together so very badly. And Charlie or Payman, something that resembles the girl that they raised, is upstairs now still drawing in that book. We have lots of scenes of pages flipping by themselves, new illustrations of Peter screaming with his eyes blacked out. We know that the book is going to be significant, as it always has, it has foretold the future. It drew the head of the bird before it was cut off, and now it is telling us something is going to happen to Peter.
0: And if you see what Annie finds out about Payman when she looks through the book and her mom's box of belongings, he is a god of mischief, and I feel like that is what's going to happen with this book. Annie's going to throw it in the fire. She starts on fire and puts it out. And so again, messing with our expectations later on, we believe she's the one who's going to burn, but god of mischief, he's tricking everyone to get what he wants.
1: And again, I'm wondering, is she sleepwalking? Is she actually setting herself on fire and there is no book, or at least not in her hand? What is going on? Or is she just burning the book, but having this vision that she's being caught on fire? There's so much going on. Meanwhile, again, Gabriel Burns' Steve does not have much to do in this film, but he keeps getting these phone calls And this is in the first hour when it's mostly drama, not a lot of horror, but you just keep hearing grave desecration and things like that. It's like something's going on with the
3: mother's body. I think you can figure that out, that she's missing. that is gone eventually. We'll see photos confirming that. But the fact that she's been a ghost in this house has told me that really from early on, that it wasn't a surprise to find out that the mother is still a force to be reckoned with, even in death. We got that sense even from, yeah, the eulogy was that this woman is not going to stay down easy. <laughs> and this is also around the same time Annie is finding an old photo book and seeing that Ellen in the past knew for the whole time Joan. Joan was a friend and was there at weddings, at religious events, and she should be afraid of this woman.
1: And it's during this scene where we discover payment. It's the first time we hear the name or see the name on the screen.
3: I don't know how I feel about the, it would prefer to be in a boy's body. I'm not sure what to make of that. You know, normally in movies that underline gender differences, that's what the movie's about. Here, it just seems like a weird conceit of like, well, that's the reason why Charlie didn't stick. But it says in the text, you can read, hit, hit pause, the book says it can take female form. It just prefers a boy. Yeah, I mean, it was in Charlie for, what, 13 years? Because
1: that's what was going on with all the weird grandma breastfeedings. When the, when they said that the grandmother was feeding, I thought they meant, like, with a spoon in a baby jar. When you see the diorama. <laughs>
0: Until you see that miniature.
1: She's still <laughs> lactating? <laughs> How the hell does that happen?
0: I do get the feeling Ellen... Payman was in her, and then she put it into Charlie. She tried to put it into her son, but he killed himself, thinking he was schizophrenic. And yeah, they've been waiting for that male host. This is where the movie gets, you know, this weird pagan cults movie, and with all their rituals and you're just not expecting that. It's out of nowhere. So you're seeing all these allegories about family trauma handed down through generations or maybe DNA handed down through generations. Now it's like, are we going to get into like gender issues all of a sudden?
3: Yeah, it's like I was drinking the margarita and it stopped being tequila. It was all salt. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is a horror movie. There's nothing elevated about any of this stuff. It is exactly as you would expect in any horror movie. This is a devil cult. Rosemary's Baby has been mentioned. Exorcist. Like we're just dealing with a manifestation of evil and they have to fight that but by the time they get to fighting it it is
1: far too late and i want to give a shout out to alex wolf i mean he is really pulling me along i wasn't sure how i felt about him when he was a stoner hanging out with his friends but quickly the friends drop by the wayside the girl whose ass he was staring at in class goes away we're focusing on him and dealing with this drama and he's selling every moment of it But the scene where he gets possessed in class and he like raises his hand and the teacher thinks he's going to ask a question and just the weird body motions. I don't know if that was CGI or some kind of mime. The fact that I don't know makes me like it even more. And then slamming his head into that desk so damn hard.
0: Wow. Yeah, this is weird though. I'm like, okay, what is the analogy? What's the allegory? Whatever you want to call it, the metaphor here. Because if Payman wants this male host... And I'm assuming he's taking Peter over. Why is he slamming the face down and contorting? Maybe he's just getting used to it. It's like being John Malkovich and he's just learning to control that body.
1: No, they say the body needs to be
3: weakened so he can enter it.
0: Ah, okay.
3: We've actually seen Joan across the street trying to help this process along, shouting encouragement to the demon, out, out. Like, I mean, I don't know if it's technically helping at all, but it's telling us as an audience member that this is, as I suspected with Charlie, there is an original soul there fighting off trying to ward off something that is subsuming it and to look at the other metaphor i don't know enough about schizophrenia to know is it more commonly matrilineally passed along to males it does it prefer I don't know
0: if it's passed through the mom, but males do suffer from it more. And Peter, if he's 16, he's a little young. Usually it's your early 20s that it typically manifests. But I guess, you know, for the storytelling, why not
3: 16? He is the age that Charles was when he thought that there were people inside him and he hung himself. And Peter, I don't know what's going
1: on when we've seen that little, like we talked about, the blue ring, like the Nostromo or something coming down. When he sees it in his classroom, I thought he was going to see Charlie's ghost because we'd seen the grandmother's ghost earlier and they just had the seance. When he looks into that mirror and sees evil Peter staring back at him, again, the guy just sells that scene really well with the facial expression. And that is eerie. And I'm, still thinking these are all nuts people. I still, I think you could, when credits roll, walk out of there thinking this is just all schizophrenia.
3: Even more than that, we're hearing that sound. That was like the biggest jump scare, I think, in the whole audience when I saw it theatrically was that one point, Tony Collette is just driving along and she hears that sound and stops the car. I mean, just to know that something about Charlie is hanging out with them is very unnerving. Peter
0: does, before this, see Charlie, he wakes up and she's standing in the corner and that head goes rolling off and turns into like a basketball. Right.
3: It's sad because we thought, or at least Annie thought, that bringing Charlie back would bring them all together and what she's really done is, yeah, created tragedy in which there's no escape now.
0: Yeah, we see something... Peter's going to think it's his mom, but some hands jump out. I think the most typical, like, horror film jump scares when those hands pop out right after Charlie's head falls off and, like, grabs Peter by the head and tries to rip it off and he believes it's his mom sleepwalking again.
1: Oh, that was very creepy. And the fact that the mother's in the room and being like, don't don't tell your father, don't tell... I think it had to be the mother, you know, it just had to be her trying to rip her son's head off and then trying to cover it up the same as when she was saying, I'm not sleepwalking again.
3: Whether it's by demon or sleepwalking, however you want to write it, the fact remains there is true aggression between these two. They really do want to kill each other. And so it's manifesting itself in all kinds of ways as we approach the climax. Peter calls his dad. I guess you get out of school when you bash your face (laughs) into your desk enough times. And while he is being transferred to the house, Annie has gone up into the attic and found her mom. Found a bunch of flies first. And I'm thinking, not only would the flies not stay
1: in the attic, the smell would not stay in the attic.
0: <laughs> well, the smell doesn't. Earlier in the film, and I only noticed this the second time, Steve is walking around. He's like, what's that smell? And you just think he's in Annie's studio. It's paint or something. No, it's the dead body in the attic.
3: Yeah. And when he gets home, he doesn't believe her. First, he doesn't believe there's a body up there. And then when he finds the body up there, he thinks that she's the one that dug up Ellen and brought it into the house.
0: No head on Ellen. It should be said.
3: He does not believe any supernatural answers. It's just not going to work for this guy. But it's at this point where
1: everything gets supernatural. She's again babbling about this book and wanting it in the fire and that she's gotten on fire. And of course, nobody could walk into this room See this woman babbling this way and believe a goddamn word of it. Even if somehow the words make sense, the presentation of those words undermines any credibility. And so here's her moment of sacrifice. They led us to believe this would happen. She burned the book and she caught on fire. And so she takes that book, has doused it in flammable liquid, and she throws it in there. And you expect her to go up. No, for some reason, Gabriel Byrne is burned. Because
0: he's not important. He's not of the bloodline. And here's my question. Did you guys know he was a therapist? Because I didn't know that until I started reading about the film and going to outside sources. I think that would have helped a little bit because he is so incensed at this point. Not just because it's a crazy woman. He's like, you're doing this all over again. And I feel like, oh, there's a history here. I wish I had a better sense of what he knew or that he was a therapist. He'd studied this kind of thing.
1: Two watchings.
3: Didn't get it. Got it off of a featurette that came on the desk. Exactly. (laughs) Oh, I saw it. It's there, for example, he's writing a colleague, in fact, to say, I think my wife has gone over the edge when he gets the photos of the desecration. It's ironic because she's going to group therapy and not telling him that... There's all these secrets. Again, if characters could just tell what's going on, they would be able to stop the tragedy from happening. The problem is that Annie has never confided what she's been doing with Joan, with therapy. In her spare time at all, she's been left alone to make dollhouses. And all that's led to is a show that's not going to happen in New York. And he's had enough. He feels like he needs to intervene. I haven't said anything this whole movie. And now I'm going to. Now I'm going to say, you're crazy. This book is ridiculous. And we are going to have a major intervention right now before it gets any worse.
1: I like this character, though, because he hadn't said anything, but he's been building up to it. This isn't a sudden turn. This is a character arc for him as he started off. Probably thinking now the family can get over things. You know, we had the mother living with us who had the Alzheimer's and everything. We can now get on with a normal life. The thing I read and I really didn't get and would have been so interesting is that Annie was his patient and that they went from doctor patient Whoa. to married.
0: Yeah, I did read that.
3: Then that's the greatest sin of all. Like that you don't do that's You don't have that interaction with your patient. Anyway, you're right. I had no clue of that. And that changes a lot about how I feel about him.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it's cut for a reason, but that's what the intent was when filming. They Tony Collette mentioned it in one of those featurettes. But the whole movie, he's been siding more and more against his wife. And he even had a phone call when right before she destroys all her art. <laughs> I love that she destroys it as the phone call's coming in. We wish you the best. If you need more time for the show, just let... Then she smashes everything. I'm like, I think she'll need more time. But... Steven said, I'm going to protect my son. He drew a line in the sand. He hadn't done anything about it yet, but more and more, he realized his priority needed to be as a father more than a husband. And it's here when he's finally about
3: to take action that, yeah, he gets burned up. Yeah, I think the final straw is this moment. But when he saw her recreate the moment that the daughter's head got ripped off in diorama, you could see him angry. Yeah. And he's popping pills. And again, therapists, you're not trained to show your emotions. You're not supposed to have a fight. You leave people to process it, and he went his own way. But by staying so quiet, he incinerates. He becomes a non-factor in this climax. He throws the book in there. He is engulfed in flames. And we're wondering what happens when Peter's going to wake up and smell something burning.
0: And this is when the film goes full horror. Like, Peter's in bed. Annie is clinging to the wall and I remember seeing this in theaters. She's just up there in the corner. It's dark. And then you just you kind of just notice and I look over at my wife. I'm like, do you see that? She's like, yes, I am terrified.
1: <laughs> oh my God. I was watching this with Marjorie and had very similar seeing her like hanging. First of all, part of me's like She's Spider-Man
3: now? She can just <laughs> yes. hang on the wall? Not Exorcist. I mean, spider walking.
0: Yeah, she is possessed at this point. Payment is in control. But I was
1: freaked out by that and the way she scurries along the wall. And is this in her head? Is she watching? Does she think she's on a wall? Does Peter
3: think she's on the wall, but she's not really there? Are we in Peter's perspective now? That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Is that up to this point, we've more or less seen the story told through Annie's perspective. Well, maybe Annie hung herself like her brother. Maybe she's already dead. And what we have now is a schizophrenic coming into consciousness in a really bad moment in his family's history.
1: Yeah, she is full-on attacking, which I expected. I believed her to go nuts enough after that fire that she would attack him. I didn't expect her to do it with demonic powers and the ability to levitate.
0: It is so freaky. When she's sitting there, Peter runs up in the attic, closes the door, and she's clinging to the ceiling, smashing her head against that, pounding at And they sped up the footage. It got got
3: really horror there. It's even better because of the anticipation. He runs up in the attic. We hear the pounding. I'm thinking, but wait, she had to get a hook to reach that. That's up so high. How can she be up there?
0: She's floating around at this point, Stuart. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, it can't get worse than this. Nope, Tony it to that sore head off now.
3: And, yes, Peter has to become what is expected of him by all of the occultists. They're going to get rich. That was on the other page of the Book of Payman, was that people want this to occur because Payman rewards them with, you know, whatever. Monetary wealth, it looks like, for sure, and then whatever else that evil will afford you. But it is so out of the blue and this is
2: what all the all the old
1: naked people walking out in the attic yeah this is where i'm thinking rob zombies lords of salem very <laughs> <Okay>. specifically <laughs> is the naked old people but i think they're ghosts they're all really fucking pale these naked old people need to get some sun because i thought they were ghosts or zombies or spirits or something i never thought they were cult members where's their clothes how'd they get in the attic i got so many questions about that
0: well they, they've been in control the whole time but yeah i agree like i don't know they put a dead body in the attic without the family finding out i guess they could be naked up there too
3: schizophrenics oftentimes see demons they oftentimes see visions of horrific things again there's a reading there that can explain this logically
0: and one of the details that i like you could read it either way is real or the onset of schizophrenia tony collette's up there sawing her head off Peter's going to go out the window to try to get away from all these old naked people, which I would probably do too. Yes,
1: I think that's the right choice. (laughs) When I see Annie floating in the air... (laughs) <laughs> beheading herself everybody's dying by losing their heads and the naked people and the attic is blocked off the way they framed it the director is telling me he's going to jump out the window and the framing is like yeah that's what i would do too yeah. i will take a broken leg or a few broken ribs i will even take being paraplegic for the rest of my life over dealing with these old naked people
0: But the detail I love is you see Peter laying on the ground. You still hear that (laughs) sighing noise of Annie. And then you hear the thud of Annie's head. It's all just showing Peter, though. And you see that as soon as that thud happens, you see that light come down and rest on Peter.
3: Yeah, and then something black leave his body as well. There has been a transference. He stands up. Want to point out, you might miss it. In all of this horrific imagery, if it wasn't awful enough, the family dog is dead. Yes,
0: you just see it laying there. A
3: few (laughs) feet away, poor Maxie, the corgi, is a corpse for reasons unknown. I completely missed that on two watchings, and I'm glad nobody should kill a corgi. They're too cute. That's how you
0: know payment is evil.
3: That's how you know this movie's not sentimental. And the treehouse, you know... We had been thinking for a while that it was a scary place because, well, when I back when I believe Charlie was going to be the evil force, she was spending all her time up there, even though it was cold. And I was thinking of Reagan playing with the Ouija board in the basement. And that must be how the evil first got her. And then later in the movie, we see red lights coming out of the window.
0: When that red light just comes on all of a sudden as Peter's laying in bed. You're like, oh, here's something evil happening. No, it's a space heater.
1: Yeah, I love that scene where that happens. I didn't know what was going on, but the fact that it was a space heater that was so red and illuminated the whole room, the imagery here is really working for me. And it's because it's all based in that drama. It feels so real to me that I can go with the unreality of him going back up there. And I don't know how they fit so many naked old people in a (laughs) treehouse.
3: Yeah, it, it takes us back to the whole idea of the bottles again. We're kind of back in a miniature. It's like the treehouse is a miniature of the one we were in before. And it's like one of Annie's dioramas come to life. She's always told autobiographical stories from her life using these dolls. And this is the final one. We see her body with no head. We see Ellen without a head. We see Charlie with no body <laughs> on a mannequin. <laughs> like
0: one of her toys she would make. There's that in the mismatched head and body. And what's interesting, you get to this point, and this movie's just gone so crazy during the last 30 minutes. The score totally changes. It's just this very fantastical, light music all of a sudden. It, again, it just shifts.
3: Rite of Spring, I kept thinking. It It, it felt, yeah, yes. almost hopeful. And again, I guess to Satanist, it would be. <laughs> yeah, and that they
1: have Charlie's head on the body there. It's just very hard to watch this scene because of where we're at. I'm usually pretty desensitized to everything, but seeing that was pretty hard. And again, this actor playing Peter, his facial expression, the way he's like dazed, confused, disbelieving. And then all of a sudden it's like, Payman takes over. You see the confidence. You see them raise his head a little bit. Like he is the leader of these people.
0: And what's really interesting is Joan, she's going to tell Peter what's going on, but she doesn't call him Peter. She says, Charlie, you're all right now. Yeah, you are Payman. And so I guess even though Payman didn't want that girl body, they always had that affection for Charlie because she carried that spirit along, got it from Ellen, and now it's able to transfer into that male body that Payman wants.
1: But does that mean... Charlie's spirit is free and that payment is now in Peter. I'm
0: (laughs) according to again, according to Astor, there was never any Charlie. She was payment since she was a baby and grandma got a hold of her.
1: So there is no little girl. Only there is no Dana. Only (laughs) Zul. Correct.
0: According to the director, you could interpret it another way. If you want the
1: thing I've noticed about the director, because I did do a little bit of reading. He's very interested in talking up the demonic side of this. And not so interested in talking up the psychological side of this.
3: No, and he also mentions that a lot of these ideas and stories came from a personal place. And again, this is someone we don't know. If he had a long history and someone had the interview and dug into his past, we will be able to point probably to moments that are autobiographical, I assume with a character who, you know, we see Annie always telling stories from her life in miniature. That's kind of what a filmmaker does as well. I suspect there are several moments here that come from his actual life, and maybe one day we'll know what those are.
0: I'll say I kind of do appreciate that this isn't an analogy for how schizophrenia or mental illness is is something evil, something demonic, because that's something that's been played up in Hollywood forever. I've dealt with clinical depression my entire life. I have a sister who deals with severe anxiety, and I think there is such a stigma, and and there's always this fight against that, that it's not the psychos that are out there killing people, that people with mental illness are often more harmed than the ones doing the harm. So I'm kind of glad that's a red herring and they go away from that if you want a more literal interpretation that it's not mental illness is a demon that's going to destroy your life
1: i think when credits roll you can walk out of this room thinking whatever you want it to be it could be either or
0: oh yeah you you could have that interpretation
1: but the fact that the last shot shows them in the dollhouse the film you know that's black all around and we see like a cutaway wall for that treehouse, just like the dollhouses annie had built they were puppets all along. And it, it is pretentious, but it comes through very well. So, Jacob Stewart is hereditary in your genes. Jacob.
0: Yeah, this is a film. I liked it the first time I saw it, but it is, like Stewart said, there, there is a psycho moment in this movie that just totally threw me. I'm like, I don't know what to expect now and that's fun like that doesn't happen in movies very often so i hope you watched it before you listen to us talk about it because that is just a rare experience these days we're with spoilers everywhere it's hard to avoid them but yeah, I think this is a well-crafted film. It's obvious that Aster put a lot of thought and detail, maybe a little too much. I mean, there there are a lot of layers in this, and it could get kind of muddled, like trying to figure out, okay, is is this a cult and th- this is about that kind of thing, or is it about schizophrenia? I, I do like just a kind of a broad, this is about how you aren't always in control you inherit dna you inherit parenting styles all that kinds of thing and to turn that into a horror again i like that idea i've always said i don't like horror but the last few years i just seen this explosion in this elevated horror that i've really gravitated to and it makes me excited like the fact that i was excited for a horror film this year when i saw hereditary says something so yeah i think this is a, a great crafted film Great acting. Again, give Tony Collette the Oscar now. We don't need to wait. Sorry, Lady Gaga. I don't care if the, that star is born. <laughs> give it to Collette. But yeah, strong recommend for Hereditary. Stuart.
3: Yeah, I am certain I'm watching a very good film, even though I'm not exactly certain, even the second time, with months to process the original theatrical experience, what it is that I've seen. If it's a portrait of madness or superstition, all that I can say conclusively is it's a tragedy in which the characters couldn't get out of their own way. And that you feel every bit of the pain that they feel in being unable to change their fate. The movie does remind me in a strange way of Sixth Sense when I saw that 20 years ago and not just because that also stars Tony Collette I remember that movie came with a groundswell of hype masterpiece next Hitchcock genius it's a word I always struggle with and when I saw Sixth Sense I'm like yes there are moments of brilliance here and yet There are things. They were little things at that time, but there were things that made me think the director had blind spots. And now that I've had more chance... You you think Aster's got a happening coming up? Well, I think that, you know, the more M. Night movies I've seen, the easier it is to spot what does and doesn't work in Sixth Sense. I wonder if that won't be true for Hereditary. Right now... It's just an outlier. It's just an oddball film. I don't know if it's a masterpiece or a very good first film that has some weird quirks that probably could have been tightened up. But the important thing to know, the only thing to really focus on at this point, is that I want to see more from him. I want to see this movie again. And I highly recommend it to everyone. Even if you don't like elevated horror. If you don't like the idea of horror aspiring for art. I think there is enough here that's just got genre appeal that you, everyone should see it.
0: Yeah, the last 30 minutes of this, if you're a horror fan, watch the last 30 minutes when it just goes crazy.
1: Yeah, and I have no problem with horror as art. I like horror that pushes boundaries of all kinds, including storytelling. It, But The Witch made me really have a negative attitude. So coming into this, at the 30 minute mark, I didn't care if there was going to be horror. I didn't care if there were going to be ghosts. I think the genius of this movie is it's a solid drama that has ghosts in it. And so it works without the ghosts, whereas I feel like The Witch the drama there didn't work as well. It was always in the shadow of the witch because of how it was told to us with the baby being killed and the woman bathing in its blood and things. It teased things from the start that were not answered in an adequate speed or in the end adequately at all for my taste. Here, this family pulls me in and I'm so with it. And yeah, I can't describe the sheer emotional reaction I had during the car accident scene. But the more I watched the film, the more I'm wondering what is real. And you know what movie this kind of reminded me of? Is Donnie Darko, when I first saw that film. And there wasn't the director's cut that has, like, text popping up to explain what's going on in Donnie Darko at the time. I saw the theatrical cut of Donnie Darko. And for both these films, as soon as I watched it, I became obsessed with analyzing it and wanting to know... Wait, what? What was this meaning? What is that? And so I watched this movie again, and then I watched the featurettes, And I read a little bit online that I'm like, I want to stop. I want to bring my opinions in here. I know enough of what he said to know what he talks about, but I don't want everything explained. But that's how I was with Donnie Darko too. And then once you have it explained though, it's going to forever change your viewing of it. I can't watch Donnie Darko with my own interpretations anymore because the director there spelled it out so much. I think after a little bit more reading, Aster will put me in that same spot with this film. I don't think it has a high rewatchability after a couple. I wanted to see all the clues, but because it is a drama, it's not going to be like Nightmare on Elm Street where you can put it in every three months or something.
3: It's not a feel-good film. Yeah, and I wouldn't recommend putting Nightmare on Elm Street on again ever. Well, all right, part three? Yeah, okay. So, But it's
1: a very strong recommend from me. This has brought me back to say, okay... Some elevated horror is good. Not all of it is going to be to my taste, but this movie, and maybe it's because I do like a good family drama and I like good performances and I like good cinematography, but this thing has atmosphere oozing out of it. It's singularly the best thing I've watched this Halloween season.
3: Yeah. And the word singular, I just want to focus on that. It's unlike anything else, even though we can make references and Peter Greenaway, and I know he loved Carrie and wanted to bring that. There are things you can cite, but the movie operates by its own dimension. Again, that's what makes it feel odd. I don't know if it's good or bad that it goes in so many crazy directions, but it's new. And that's exciting enough to just recommend on that alone.
0: And maybe next year we'll have a chance to get a better idea if this was a fluke or not. A-24, just two days ago as of this recording, announced the date for Astor's next film, August 9th, 2019. I think we're doing like 40 weekend of release films. I don't know if we could get this one in there. Maybe someone will donate so he can. But yeah, he's doing a Scandinavian folk horror film.
1: You know what? On paper... I'd be like, fuck no. But because it's him, I'm interested. It's like that meme, you know, the meme of the guy being like, no, nah, no. Nah. All right. All right.
3: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I've, I have already confessed on the record. If you go listen to our witch show, become a patron, go hear what we all had to say about that. Scandinavian horror is something that I think is underrepresented these days and really cool. So I look forward to that. That will be really uh, neat to see someone, an American at that, follow in those footsteps.
1: But again, thanks to Mark for introducing me to this film and for giving us a good thing to discuss. Everyone should thank Mark because... Extra
0: show for everyone!
1: Yeah, hopefully you enjoyed listening to it and it was your Halloween treat that is good for you. It makes you think and it doesn't have excess amounts of sugar and no peanuts that are going to make you stick your head out your window and then get decapitated. And... If you did enjoy this show, please think about heading to iTunes, leaving us a five-star review and letting other people know what you enjoy about the show in a few words. And yeah, as Stuart mentioned, if you want to hear us discuss more elevated horror, including Get Out and The Witch, those are available along with 20 total shows for our patrons. The patronage... It started off, I think, with some pretty solid shows, but now I can't think of a better bargain than 20 exclusive shows for $10 a month. That's 50 cents a show, and then a new one being added every month. In a couple weeks, we're adding Apocalypse Now, which is a huge, daunting film to discuss, but going to be a really good conversation, I think. And so, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Till next time, hail Payman! Hail! Hail! Like this
0: what's happening please stop
1: Amy, Amy, please. what's going stop. on please, Mom! please, stop. please
2: really me please stop
0: what's Dad, happening why stop. is everyone please scared stop. why are you scaring me make it stop make it fucking stop. stop
2: thank you for listening to this episode of now playing podcast and we hope you've enjoyed this bonus movie review
0: did you feel like you wanted to cry today
1: you think that might feel like a relief
2: And an extra thanks to Mark Ward for his support of our show and choice of movie for us to review. But let's all remember, Sophocles wrote the oracle so that it was unconditional, meaning Heracles never had any choice, right? So does that make it more tragic or less tragic than if he has a choice? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. There, you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including The Incredibles, Batman, Spider-Man, Hellboy, The Godfather, Back to the Future, Die Hard, The Fast and the Furious, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Okay, well, I'm going to go see a movie. Okay. Now playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and Pirates of the Caribbean. Links to our Podbean page are available at nowplayingpodcast.com. Our country has had many ups and downs, economically speaking. We've talked about the struggles for a decade. We suffered through many, many hardships. Wall Street had been going so well that when it finally crashed because of the great boom, it caused a huge decline in the economy. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Scarface, Monster Trucks, Goodfellas, Beetlejuice, Galaxy Quest, and more plus a new exclusive review added every month. Please, I really, really
1: need you to be open to this. Please, please, I promise. Both of you, please, I need you to
2: be open. Please. Come on, Steve, come on, come on. You can also donate to us directly via PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com.
1: We need to do this as a family. This needs all our energies, okay, together.
2: Want 125 more Now Playing reviews? Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, underrated movies we recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. Read this out loud, every syllable, very carefully. It's to make things start. You can also follow Now Playing on Google Plus, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Hey, are you guys friends on yeah. Facebook? <laughs> you, you
3: have friends, friends with- Dude, I like Facebook.
2: <laughs> you can also help Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. It doesn't make it easier, obviously, but sometimes
0: it makes it less lonely
2: now playing is produced by Arnie Carvalho
1: and then I realize that I am to blame or not that I'm to blame but I am blamed
2: and what do you think you feel blamed for I don't know now playing is edited by Arnie how's it going just working, taking a break from avoiding the show. Now Playing's credit narration by Brock. I heard his voice. I felt his presence in the room. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Well,
0: that was your opinion, and you were wrong.
2: Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended.
1: Please, I know how it sounds, but there's no way to talk about it. I just need to show you, okay? Please, you'll see. I'm completely lucid.
2: Now playing podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Now playing is a Vinganza Media production. Copyright 2018. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.
0: Oh my God! Oh my God! Ah!
1: Oh! I do want to die.
3: die. And happy Halloween. The ha- real show. We, happy happy. Boop. Oh, I mean, you 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 kicked it off. <laughs> we can't get it together here.
1: Yeah, I already got a blooper in. Ah. The cult worshipped a demon called Paimon. Payman,
3: <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <the> simple Simon. <laughs> simple Simon the
1: Paimon. <laughs> Give a shout out to Alex Wolf. I mean, again, I don't know Peter this. Wolf,
0: Or Yeah, Peter's yeah. his name in the movie. No, sorry. not Peter and
1: the Wolf. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> I, Peter I love Wolf. the
3: oboe in that. <laughs> the little duck he's killed. <laughs> used to love that as a kid the oboe was my favorite it was part. the best part i'm sorry you were saying something about this movie <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you just want to keep making people's tones, go right ahead <laughs>